You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Well, we're really delighted to welcome back Grigory Vatpan, who had been here for a conference a few summers ago. He's a Russian human rights lawyer and scholar, I think a very interesting activist scholar kind of thing that we all want to be, but he's doing it. Um, he's a senior lawyer at Memorial, which is Russia's oldest human rights group and winner of the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. And for their efforts, they were, you know, lost their right to exist in Russia for that and lots of other reasons, and I'm sure he'll deal with that in his talk. Um, he's been a uh, strategic, uh, dealing with strategic litigation in Russia uh, before the Constitutional Court and before the European Court of Human Rights, when, when Russia went to the European Court of Human Rights, uh, for over a decade. So lots and lots of interesting experience. At present, he's a democracy fellow uh, with the Center for European Policy Analysis in Washington. He's a former uh, Galina Sarovoytova fellow uh, at the Kennan Institute. Uh, he earned his uh, first law degree from Moscow State University, an LLM from Harvard, and has a PhD in international law from St. Petersburg State University. Um, his, he has a very provocative title, uh, What Went Wrong in Russia? I mean, that if we just stop there, then that's, that's, that's we've got a lot to say there, but we go on to say uh, the story of Memorial and the country's failed transition to the rule of law. Thank you, Katie. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here. It's great to be back at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, it's my second time here. First time I was here for the Russia conference in 2018. Um, and um, it's really admiring that uh, Creek is such a vibrant community of uh, scholars focusing on Eastern Europe, Central Asia, Russia, that part of the world. Uh, I think I should begin uh, by uh, saying that we should all acknowledge, acknowledge the enormous intellectual distance between Russia's studies in uh, the early 1990s, around the time Krika was created. It was, was it 1993? And, yeah. uh, uh, and now. So back then, uh, the prevalent understanding of Russia was that it was a country in transition, that it was a country uh, making progress towards the rule of law and democracy. Uh, and now, uh, Russia is uh, a country responsible for a catastrophe in, uh, in that part of the world. Russia is a country that's uh, waging a war against Ukraine, a war that was officially determined by the United Nations General Assembly to be a war of aggression. Uh, and it's a war that affects not only that region, but it affects the entire world. I'm sure you know about that. It creates enormous instability with no end in sight. And so today, any studies of Russia, uh, I think, should, are impossible without focusing in this or that way, in, in some way, on the question of what went wrong with that transition. So I want to focus in my talk on just one aspect of it, uh, and that concerns the rule of law. Russia is the cause of this ongoing war, and so the answer to the question uh, of why this war became possible 
is impossible to answer without looking at Russia's domestic situation. The failure of the rule of law paved the way towards, towards the war. But what exactly went wrong with the rule of law? And when did that happen? Domestically, in the Russian liberal discourse, uh, uh, there, there have been attempts for a while to figure out the answer to that question. Uh, but those answers usually focused on Putin years after 2000. So there were different answers. Going back in time, should we say uh, things went wrong in 2020 when Putin amended the Russian constitution and allowed himself to be president until 2036? Was it uh, back in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea? Was it maybe earlier? Some say maybe it was 2011, 2012, when Putin declared his intention to return after stepping down in 2008, and uh, uh, then uh, under his leadership, uh, the Russian parliament adopted a series of repressive laws, such as the foreign agents law, for example. Was, it, was, it, was that the point of no return? Was it rather in 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia? Or was it in 2000, back in 2000, when Putin himself became president? So that's basically the, the chronology, the, 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 the timeline that, uh, that is, is prevalent in Russian liberal discourse. But my answer to, to that question, uh, what went wrong in, in Russia and when it went wrong, is different. Uh, and I think uh, that it happened much earlier. The critical moment was much earlier. It was in late 1980s, early 1990s that something very important went wrong in Russia. At the latest, in 1991 or 1992. And it's a paradox, because uh, 1991, uh, we still perceive 1991 as the moment of the triumph of democracy in Russia, the high point of democracy. And the Soviet Union disintegrating, the totalitarian regime collapsing. And yet it was at that moment that it was perhaps already doomed, all doomed to fail. And I would like to explain to you how, uh, how that happened. I believe a, a major factor that led uh, Russia to the current catastrophe has been the utter failure of what we call transitional justice. And uh, by transitional justice, we mean confronting past crimes of a non-democratic regime. At a time when the Soviet totalitarian regime collapsed, very little was done to confront its past crimes. In fact, almost nothing was done. There was a very narrow window of opportunity, uh, and then it was already too late. So let's think about 1991 as a point of no return. So, so a moment that was even before the end of the Soviet Union. Impunity for past atrocities set the ground for persecution and abuse of power to reproduce themselves. I want to tell that story to you through the prism of Memorial, uh, and a Russian NGO that uh, I'm working for. Uh, I've worked for Memorial for um, about three years now, but the organization itself uh, is more than 35 years old. Uh, it was, as you perhaps have heard, was forcibly dissolved by the Russian government in two, uh, 2022, but it continues to, to, to function both inside and uh, outside of Russia. 
So I think the story of Memorial uh, kind of reflects Russia's trajectory since late 1980s. And the story of the failure of the rule of law in Russia is also the story of Memorial. So let me tell you that story. Um, Memorial started in 1987 uh, as a grassroots initiative, a group of activists who came together to petition the government to erect a memorial in memory of the victims of the Soviet uh, regime. So hence the name of the organization. We say memorial in Russian, but uh, the idea was to, uh, was to erect a memorial. Uh, the Soviet system of terror is responsible for at least 12 uh, million victims, 12 million victims uh, were prosecuted and persecuted. Millions were killed, including someone in my extended family, but many more went through the Gulag system of Soviet concentration camps. So the initial idea uh, at the time of Perestroika in 1987 was to memorialize those victims, to pay tribute to them. But very early on, and this is something that actually few people know, uh, not only outside of Russia, but even inside of Russia, but from very early on, Memorial was not a homogenous group. There were different views about how to tackle the Soviet past within that, that first group of activists. We may call this distinction the one between radicals and moderates, although the radicals were, seems like, now it seems like they were not radicals at all. They were just common sense people. Uh, but still, there was, there was a moderate agenda for a memorial pursued by some of the people who said that the, the organization, the movement, should focus on memorialization, monument, naming the victims, and education, enlightenment of the public. That it should be about monuments, cemeteries, museums, and libraries. And uh, there was a radical, so-called radical faction in Memorial that believed something more should have been done, that Memorial should focus beyond, beyond memory, should focus on also and should demand individual accountability of, of those responsible for the atrocities, should, uh, should push for opening the state archives, state security, uh, for security services archives, and should demand the dissolution of Soviet security services, and they should push for their reform. Um, the Soviet regime, and it's, it's very early years of Memorial, 87, 88, um, uh, was very uneasy about that grassroots movement, as you can imagine, because it was, uh, it was truly uh, a nationwide movement, and people all around the country were, were involved in creating memorial chapters. And so um, the approach of the Soviet authorities from the outset was, was very, uh, memorial was, was being pressured by the Soviet government from its very early years. So it, it's not, it would not, be, would, be, would not be correct to say that memorial uh, was born at a time when the, the Soviet regime could offer no resistance to that movement. It could, and it did. So um, the activists were um, faced with, with various kinds of pressure. Uh, to begin with, at that time, an organization could not uh, be established, an NGO could not be established in the Soviet Union 
without some other government institution being one of, among the founders. So Memorial had to establish itself through certain government-controlled unions, such as the Union of Writers or the Union of, of uh, Architects, for example. And the KGB and the, and the Communist Party in, uh, tried to inflict pressure on Memorial through the, uh, the leaders of those government-controlled institutions. Um, in, in the first place, trying to prevent the creation of a centralized memorial entity at all. Um, they also successfully infiltrated some of the memorial chapters uh, in, in Russian regions. They tried to blackmail the organization at certain points. So, for example, in 1988, at some point, uh, the government told Memorial that they would they, they were frozen they were uh, they would uh, freeze the bank account, uh, which was used for fundraising for that memorial, uh, the monument for which Memorial was uh, initially created. So, it was a, still an atmosphere of intimidation, and it is in that atmosphere that the moderate agenda within Memorial prevailed. Uh, it was, it's unclear to, to what extent external pressure, whether external pressure or internal beliefs played uh, a greater role. But uh, it, it, it seems like the liberal thinking of the time, the distant thinking at the time, the prevalent thinking was uh, uh, the, great, the, the, the main idea was uh, to ensure peace, to ensure a peaceful transition, uh, to prevent a civil war, to ensure an orderly transfer of uh, orderly transition, uh, and uh, also to prevent that what was called back then a witch hunt, a term well known to the U.S. audience today. <laughs> And so it was in, in that spirit, the spirit of ensuring peace and moving on, that uh, at Memorial's founding congress in 1989, uh, Memorial founders at, at that inaugural convention declined to consider criminal prosecution of those responsible for Soviet-era crimes, quote, in the interests of humanity and mercy, unquote. Uh, seems like it was a crucial cons concession back then. And, uh, I'm not even sure if, if that concession was asked of, but it was made. And it's all against the background of the, the prevalent mood uh, in the Russian society back then, which was quite different. Majority of Russians uh, in 1991, according to a Russian scholar, Evgenia Lozina, according to the polls, uh, overwhelmingly supported the idea of accountability for Soviet uh, uh, state perpetrators. 71% uh, of uh, those uh, questioned in 1991 supported um, some, some, some form of accountability, such as prosecution or illustration. In 1992, 60% uh, of respondents uh, were in favor of uh, uh, dismissing former communist officials from their positions, as well as, uh, as, well as security services officials. So uh, with that uh, idea, with that statement uh, made by Memorial, the idea of accountability quickly lost momentum. Uh, and it was uh, all over, it seems, already by 1991. Uh, another, I think, very vivid uh, 
example of what was the mood at the time in the general public was something that happened in August 1991 in downtown Moscow. So in, in, in the final days of the putsch, uh, uh, an, an attempted coup d'etat by Soviet security services, including the KGB, um, uh, after the, the putsches, the, the, the coup authors were defeated, uh, there was a very jubilant mode in, in the Russian capital, and uh, there was a march, there was a crowd, mm -hmm. and that crowd marched towards Lubyanka. Mm. Lubyanka Square is uh, the location of the KGB headquarters. Um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was quite probable that that crowd could take over the building. And the leaders of that crowd, including future Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, stopped that crowd. There's a, there's a video footage of Yeltsin addressing the crowd uh, on August 23rd in front of the KGB building and saying, we should get back to work. You should leave. And Yeltsin was an authority at the time. He was, uh, he was the leader, uh, and so people listened to him. And so instead of taking over the KGB building, the steam, the, the steam of the crowd was directed towards the figure, the statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky, the first uh, head of the Soviet Security Service, VCK, which was founded in 1917. So Dzerzhinsky's statue was in front of the KGB building. <laughs> so all the anger was channeled at Dzerzhinsky. <laughs> and so as you know, that statue was demolished on the night of August 22nd, 23rd. Um, and the KGB building was left intact. I think that moment, I, so it seems like it was a, was a crucial moment uh, uh, for the Russian democratic movement. Uh, and also, the role of Russian democratic leaders, the role of Yeltsin here is very telling, I think. So, in 1991, the transitional justice post-Soviet transitional justice agenda uh, uh, in post-Soviet Russia was formulated in the law. And that law was called On Remedies for Victims um, of Political Repression. And that law had very limited scope. It only, so if we look at that law, it uh, tells us a lot about the failed transitional justice project uh, at that time. It, it, it was limited to so-called rehabilitation of the victims of Soviet era terror. By rehabilitation, we mean remedies. So um, four things that, uh, that I should mention. One, there was uh, no truth finding about Soviet era crimes. Most victims remained unnamed. Uh, there's still no official register of all the victims of, of Soviet atrocities. Uh, most mass graves remain unidentified to this day. Clandestine mass graves spread, scattered around the entire country, um, uh, housing, uh, having the remains of uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Most archives remain closed. So today, the victims or their relatives can get access to the case file, the criminal case file of those prosecuted, but it is only access to your families case file. There's no general access by historians. And what's even more significant, in 1992, there was another law enacted, a law on personal data of security service agents, which 
effectively foreclosed access to any personal data of Soviet-era perpetrators. So if you, as, as a descendant of a Soviet-era victim, get access, even if you are able to get hold of the criminal case file, you will see uh, important parts of the text either blacked out or entire pages removed, crucially including the names of those who, who were responsible for the persecution. So we, we know who the victims, some of the victims are, but we, do, we don't know who the perpetrators were. Second, there were almost no investigations into the, into the atrocities. Uh, again, looking at, at that time, 1991, was uh, a time around which some of brave activist uh, Russian, Soviet Russian investigators opened uh, some, of, some of the investigations into, uh, into discovered mass graves. There were several criminal cases going on, uh, and on YouTube you can find the questioning, the interrogation of an 88-year-old Dmitry Tokarev, who was in 1940 head of a, an a, NKVD, meaning Security Service Unit in Tver, about 100 miles uh, <coughs> northwest from Moscow. It was at that uh, NKVD building where several thousand Polish prisoners of war were executed in what was part of the so-called Katyn massacre. So Tokarev was head of Tver NKVD at the time. He was questioned as a witness first in 1991, and then for the second time in 1993. And uh, it's one of the few interrogations, and what's, what's uh, interest, very interesting uh, is that it's, it's available publicly uh, online, and uh, you can watch it, and of course Tokarev denies any wrongdoing. He says uh, there was a team of killers that was dispatched from Moscow to execute those prisoners, and he was not in charge. But the very fact that he was questioned is telling, as, as well as telling is the fact that that investigation never proceeded beyond that point. Yeah, Tokarev died later on in 1993. Other investigations were closed. No officials were publicly named responsible for any of the crimes. Some of the results of those investigations were even made secret. So that actually fuels a lot of speculation within Russian, Russian information space to this day about whether some of the crimes took place at all. So the Katyn massacre was investigated in the 1990s. Uh, it was one of the latest investigations that was closed. Uh, it was closed in 2004 by uh, the military prosecutor's office, and the results were, were made secret. We know from leaks to the press that four NKVD top to mid-level officials were deemed responsible. But we also know from historical documents that uh, were made public by uh, the Soviet authorities in 1990 that Katyn massacre the killing of some 22,000 Polish prisoners of war was a decision by the Politburo of the Communist Party, by the very leadership, by the top leadership of the Soviet Union. That leadership is not named among the perpetrators, uh, those accountable for the Katyn massacre in those investigation files. Uh, this is a case, this case was in litigation at the European Court of Human Rights called Yanovitz and others versus Russia. Um, uh, a gruesome case, but a uh, very telling one. Third, there was almost no reparation to the victims in the 1991 law, uh, and that hasn't changed since 1991. Th that law provides for a lump sum compensation of 75 rubles per uh, month spent in the gulag. <coughs> 75 rubles is less than one US dollar. <laughs> less than one US dollar for a month spent in the gulag, lump sum payment. Um, and there's also, in order to ensure that, that the victims don't get too much, 
of a compensation, there's also a cap provided for by the law, which is 10,000 rubles, which is about 100 US dollars. So this is, this is the approach to reparation. There are children of the gulag, gulag survivors, who are still alive today, people that I have the honor to represent, who are still fighting for compensation. The law uh, promised them back in 1991 that they, those who were deported, whose families were deported, uh, from European Russia to Siberia to Russian Far North would be allowed to return and would be allowed to get housing, homes, as compensation for, for, for the homes that were taken from their families. And that law has never worked. And in 2019, we won a case at the Constitutional Court of Russia ordering the government to fast-track that compensation, and that never happened because the parliament doesn't want to give money to the children of the enemies of the people. And fourth and finally, the law in 1991, neither in 1991 nor later, has provided for any meaningful guarantees of non-recurrence of those human rights abuses. Unlike in Eastern Europe, no lustration has ever been uh, carried out uh, against former security service officials or communist party officials. There was a proposal, a, a bill, uh, introduced by Galina Stravoitova, a prominent member, liberal member of the Russian parliament, 1993. It was never considered. Uh, Starovoitova's fellow deputies, all members of the liberal elite, were strongly, strongly against the idea of lustration, calling it a witch hunt. The, there was a trial held against the Communist Party of the Soviet Union at the Russian Constitutional Court in 1992, but the trial ended with nothing. The court closed the case, saying that the party was by then, it ceased to exist, so there was no case to answer. But I think it's notable that all 13 judges sitting on the Constitutional Court at the time were all former members of the Communist Party. And no one, of, no one quit the Communist Party until it ceased to exist in 1991. Uh, the KGB, the Soviet Security Service, was never affected. It was dissolved in 1991 only to re-emerge as the FSB, the Russian Federal Security Service, in 1995. And the people who were in the KGB uh, continued working uh, in the FSB uh, uh, in the 1990s. Uh, lastly, uh, today, there, there, Lenin streets in Russia combined have a total length of more than 5,000 miles. Just, just think about that. More than 5,000 mile long Lenin street, which is, which is more than twi twice the distance between you know, West Coast and East Coast. So the Lenin streets all over, as well as Zhezhinsky streets, for example. So the crimes were never addressed, no one was brought to justice, and the system remained the same. And uh, sadly enough, the uh, Russian human rights community, the Russian liberal community also, unfortunately, played a role in that. And uh, I mentioned the, the position of memorial taken in 19. 89. So let me just give you some personal uh, examples uh, uh, to show how, how, Soviet, how Soviet we still are today. Um, Sergei Suravikin, you might have heard of him. He was a battalion commander in August 1991. He was responsible, his unit was responsible for killing three democracy, pro-democracy protesters in downtown Moscow at the time of the attempted coup d'etat. So uh, Suravikin's tanks 
literally ran over two protesters and they shot the third one. He was uh, held in pretrial detention for seven months following that attempted coup d'etat, only to be released by Yeltsin. He was not only released, but he was in fact promoted by Yeltsin. Again, in that show of, you know, reconciliation and moving on. Suravikin continued to serve, the, to serve in the armed forces. Human Rights Watch report about Russian war crimes in Syria mentions Suravikin as one of the officers responsible. And uh, last year, uh, at some point uh, last fall, Suravikin for a few months was the commander responsible for, for the entire Russian army in Ukraine. And he came up with the, with the idea of bombing Ukraine's critical energy infrastructure uh, during winter months. The United Nations Independent International Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine found this was a war crime and possibly a crime against humanity. So Suravikin's career started with, with killing three protesters in 1991 and he got away with it. And that's how, how his career has progressed. Second example is Vyacheslav Lebedev. Vyacheslav Lebedev uh, became the chief judge of Russia, the chief judge of Russia's Supreme Court in 1991. He remains in that position until the present day. Few people know that in 1980s, Judge Lebedev, serving in Moscow, jailed Soviet dissidents. He was never held accountable for that. As chief judge on the, Russia, on the Russian Supreme Court, he now oversees various kinds of political prosecutions under laws that are closely modeled on the very laws against Soviet dissidents that he enforced as a judge in the 1980s. And he was appointed in 1991. Again, that crucial moment, a crucial year. Um, and finally, Vladimir Putin himself. Not only was he a KGB officer, but uh, recent documents show that uh, he was a, a direct participant in the persecution of Leningrad dissident artists. Uh, if you you can you can look it up, it's it's available online. There are some copies of search records uh, carried out by the FSB in 1975, and they show they show Putin as a junior KGB officer participating in the searches at at the homes of those dissidents. And so, uh, uh, in 1990s, he became the head of the new security service, the FSB. So Putin was on the scene. He he never left the scene. You know, he didn't arrive in 1999 or 2000 like many people uh, outside of Russia think. He was, he was there all along. He was there in the 70s, uh, he was there in the 90s, and he is, he is there to the present day. So when we look at, at these examples, uh, the distinction between the good 1990s and uh, the problematic Putin years, I think, goes away to, to an extent, as well as the distinction between Soviet years and the 1990s. In fact, seems like the 90s were no different because it wasn't just the same system but literally the same people like the people I just mentioned and let's go back to that example of Boris Yeltsin stopping the courageously stopping the march at the KGB headquarters on August 23rd 1991 he was himself obviously a communist functionary he was part of the he was part of the elite um, and uh, seems like he, like many other members of the communist, former communist elite, were not interested in opening the archives of the KGB. Uh, so it's only unfortunate that that attitude, that mood was shared by, by the liberal intellectuals as well. 
And so um, with, with that development uh, in Russia in the early 90s, Memorial's trajectory was almost predetermined. And Memorial uh, evolved from a grassroots memory movement into very quickly evolved, evolved into a human rights defender. Because the new Russia very soon began its own record of human rights violations. And then later on, Memorial, again, in line with that trajectory of the country, became not only the defender, but also itself a victim of those violations. So just to briefly recap that, already in 1993, Human Rights Center Memorial was founded, uh, which uh, dealt with present-day human rights abuses. Memorial was uh, documenting uh, Russian war crimes during the two Chechen wars, first uh, in mid-90s, and then the second one from 1999 onwards. Uh, not just that, but since, we're, since war is, is in the air, it's, uh, I think it's important to, to remember that legacy. Um, Memorial has litigated hundreds of cases against Russia on grave human rights violations before the European Court of Human Rights, including torture and forced disappearances. And uh, after 2012, it became the victim of many repressive laws that the Russian government has enacted. Uh, what's notable is those laws and practices actually replicate those of the Soviet times. So it's, it's important to see mm -hmm. the, intellectual, the, the intellectual history, the, the intellectual ancestry of those laws. So. Uh, I'll, I'll mention three of them. One is a foreign agents law enacted in 2012. Memorial was among the first organizations labeled a foreign agent. It was under that law that it was heavily fined and then dissolved in 2021-22. And I was on Memorial's legal defense team uh, at the Supreme Court and the Moscow City Court. Uh, when the law was enacted in 2012, uh, Russian authorities said, oh, uh, we're, we're modeling it along uh, the United States Foreign Agents Registration Act. Foreign agent <laughs> is a U.S. term of art. It's, it's a U.S. law. But uh, anyone in Russia would know that a foreign agent is, is a, in Russia has its own meaning. And it's a, it's a 1930s term. It's not a U.S. term for Russians. It's a 1930s term, and it means a spy or a traitor. Foreign, the, 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 the very phrase foreign agent has been widely used in official discourse of the time. So uh, the fact that that term was reincarnated in the 2012 Russian law shows that uh, the law was uh, Soviet in, uh, at its roots. Second, the so-called law against exoneration of Nazism. That law was uh, adopted in 2014, around the time Russia invaded Crimea. And uh, uh, again, the authority said uh, they modeled that law on Holocaust denial laws that exist in some of the European countries that prohibit denial of the, the Holocaust. But for some reason, that law is consistently used to silence any criticism of the Soviet Union. So again, at the trial of Memorial, it was a long trial. And uh, what we did, I think, as a legal team, we successfully uh, rebutted all the allegations that Memorial violated the foreign agents law. Memorial disagreed with the law, but it complied with the law to the best of, uh, 
of uh, our ability. And so it was a very um, revealing moment at the end of the trial when the chief prosecutor, Alexei Jafarov, rose and gave closing argument, which was very much unlike what was written in the lawsuit, which was about, I think, about the true reasons behind Memorial's dissolution. And he accused Memorial of, quote, creating a false image of the Soviet Union as a terrorist state, unquote. So that's what was behind the exoneration of Nazism law. That's what was behind the dissolution of Memorial. The image of the Soviet Union cannot be questioned. That's the official policy at the time. And that includes not questioning the crimes. Against, at least not questioning the crimes in a systematic manner. You can't talk about the so-called repressions, but you should be careful about pointing the finger at those who were responsible. In fact, the whole discourse uh, about official discourse about Soviet-era crimes is akin to a discourse about a natural disaster. So, yes, it happened. Uh, some of the crimes were not sure. But those that happened, we're very sorry about that. But that's what, that's what the time was, they say. And finally, uh, prosecutions for anti-war speech. Uh, one of Memorial leaders... Alek Karlov is currently on trial in Russia for writing an article where he compares Russia, where he calls Russia a fascist state and the Russian government a fascist government. He's being prosecuted under a law against discrediting the Russian army. If you look at this law, this is this law is no different in essence from the laws that Judge Vyacheslav Lebedev enforced against Soviet dissidents in the 1980s. So in the 1980s. He would, put, he would send people to jail under a so-called anti-Soviet propaganda law. So in the 2022 law against discrediting the Russian army, it's, mere, it's a mere change of a few words. Instead of, instead of the Soviet Union, here is the Russian army. But the essence is the same. Uh, it's unlawful to criticize the state. And uh, a memorial leader is currently on trial for doing exactly that. So uh, to the question, to conclude, to the question of uh, what went wrong in Russia, my answer is the, the chain of impunity. In 2022, uh, after the full-scale uh, invasion of Ukraine has unfolded, uh, Memorial has uh, published a report. Uh, the title of that report is Chain of Wars, Chain of Crimes, Chain of Impunity. It means that impunity for past abuses, for Soviet-era abuses, uh, led to the reproduction of the same crimes and the same abuses. And it's uh, striking how similar the episodes are. Katyn is so similar to Bucha. The ruins of Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, remind us so much of the ruins of Mariupol. Uh, and uh, obviously, foreign agents of today are the 1930s, enemies of the people. Um, and I want to quote from uh, a uh, very recent document by the United Nations in International Independent Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine that uh, precisely makes a point about impunity as the cause, as one of the causes of the war. Uh, so in that report, the commission says, quote, Russian armed forces and associated groups operate against a legacy 
of gross violations of human rights and related crimes, which were widespread, reproduced in all armed conflicts, tolerated, and at times even rewarded by the hierarchy. So that's my answer to what went wrong in Russia. Uh, and I also offered you my account of when exactly it went wrong, or rather, what was the point, of, when was the point of no return? Very early on. So um, I think there's a need for, for an intellectual effort to come up with a transitional justice agenda for post-war Russia, uh, so that we, we as a country do not repeat the mistakes made in the early 1990s. And I think that uh, there's a need to do this now, because otherwise it uh, would be already too late. Like it was too late in 1993. 1993, I remind you, was the year when Galina Stravoitova introduced that lustration bill in the, in the Russian parliament. And it was already too late, even in 1993. And the uh, Tokarev investigation uh, on the Katyn massacre episode in Tver was already going nowhere. It was already stalled in 1993. So, so, so we need to, to think about this now. And, and I'm convinced that uh, external accountability for Russia is necessary but not sufficient, because only if Russia addresses its past domestically, internally, will it cease to be a long-term threat to global peace and security? So uh, I guess my talk today is an invitation to scholars and students with uh, interest in Russia to contribute to this emerging thought and uh, emerging effort. Thank you very much.